So the baptism and genealogy of Jesus taken together uh, answer three really important questions. They answer the questions, where has Jesus come from? Who is he? And where is he headed? Where's he come from? Who is he? And where's he headed? So picture the scene. John the Baptist is stood in the Jordan River, which isn't a very impressive river, by the way. It's a relatively narrow, muddy stretch of water. And, and there were hundreds, if not thousands of people, coming to be baptised. And Luke portrays John the Baptist as the last in the line of great prophets that we read about in the Old Testament. He, he's kind of like a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. A bridge between the age of promise and the age of fulfilment. And he comes onto the scene preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the people are taking his warnings seriously. Uh, They've repented of national and individual sins and they're coming en masse to be baptised. And there would, I think, have been a sense that from this point on, things would never be the same again. Something new was happening. Imagine something like that happening here in Springfield. Imagine if thousands of people repented of their sin uh, and, and turned to God and went trooping off to Orion Lagoon to be baptised. It would cause quite a stir, wouldn't it? I'm pretty sure it would make the uh, local, if not the national, headlines. You might say, well, that would never happen. Uh, But there have been occasions when things like that have happened. Uh, For example, in 1904, there was the Welsh Revival, uh, where literally uh, at least uh, 100,000 people gave their lives to Jesus in a matter of months. Whole communities were radically changed and transformed. In certain areas, the crime rate plummeted. And of course, it did make uh, the national headlines. And in Israel... There hadn't been such a national turning towards God for hundreds of years, not since the time of Ezra and maybe not even then. Uh, This was a significant thing that was happening and a very apt time for Jesus to begin his public ministry. So we're going to start by looking at where Jesus has come from. In other words, his genealogy. Now, if you're anything like me and you get to a genealogy in the Bible, you skip over it. You probably see it as a long list of incomprehensible names that you can't pronounce and almost certainly won't remember. And if you're asked to read one in church, you'd probably pull a sickie. Uh, But Jesus's genealogy isn't in the Bible to pad it out a bit. Ancestry was and still is really important to the Jews. Not least because God had made promises to Abraham and his family forever. Uh, So uh, through wars, enslavement, exile, attempted genocide, the Jews had clung to their ancestry like a drowning man clinging to a life ring. Now there's lots we could say about this genealogy, especially when we compare it uh, to the one in Matthew's Gospel. But the key thing is that it links Jesus with Abraham and King David. And what that means is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises, the covenantal promises that God made to Abraham and David. So in Genesis 12, verse 3, God says this to Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth. As we saw a few weeks back, uh, Jesus came not just for the Jews, but for 
everybody. Uh, Jesus came for the benefit of all humankind. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Jesus is the blessing to all the peoples on earth. And then in 2 Samuel 7 verse 16, God says this to King David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Again, Jesus is the fulfillment of this, uh, of this promise. Jesus is a direct descendant of David. Uh, if you like, a king in the line of David whose kingdom will endure forever. So Jesus' genealogy is important because it reminds us that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, all the promises that we see throughout the Old Testament. So next we're going to look at what this passage can tell us about who Jesus is. Uh, But before doing that, it's worth noting that Jesus was praying at the point of his baptism. Verse 21 says, as he was praying. And Luke focuses a lot on Jesus' prayer life, especially at key moments. And what we see is that Jesus prayed alone, he prayed with other people, and he seemed to have a constant dialogue going between himself and God the Father. Jesus models the perfect prayer life. So that's what we should be aiming for. We're aiming for regular times of prayer when it's just us and God, we're, as well as uh, praying with other people. But we're also aiming to have this kind of constant dialogue going uh, between us and God throughout the day and especially at key moments. Of course, that's much easier said than done. Uh, there are times when I remember to keep the dialogue going. You know, I might find myself praying for someone uh, randomly on the train. Or I might ask God for help with something that I'm doing. You know, silly things like trying to get the lawnmower started. Actually, when it comes to the lawnmower, it's normally a choice between prayer and physically assaulting it. So um, I'm praying more for my own patience than God will miraculously start my lawnmower. Uh, But then there's other occasions when uh, something more serious happens. Uh, Like when Caleb tried to cut his finger off with a saw and rushed him to hospital. And it was only at the end of it all that I realised... I didn't even pray whilst all that was going on. That's really bad. So it's not easy. But the more we get into the habit of praying at key moments throughout the day, the more naturally it will come, especially at those times when prayer is absolutely essential. So we get a little snapshot into Jesus' prayer life. So verse 21, uh, and as he was praying, heaven was opened. And that phrase, heaven was opened, is often used in a kind of literature uh, called apocalyptic. Now, the Gospels are not apocalyptic literature, but whenever we see that phrase, heaven was opened, it's kind of like it alerts the reader to the fact that something is about to be revealed. Verse 21 continues, Heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And what's remarkable about this? Well, actually, there's lots that's remarkable about this. But the thing that we're going to focus on is that the three members of the Trinity are so clearly present in this passage. And as Christians, we believe that God is Trinity. One God, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But you know, there's no, uh, nowhere in the Bible does it explicitly say God is Trinity, There's not some passage in the Bible that we can turn to to explain the doctrine of the Trinity. 
The early church only knew that God is Trinity uh, by looking across the whole sweep of Scripture and thinking through their own experience of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and then bringing that all together and saying, okay, in light of what we know to be true, God must be Trinitarian by nature. One God, three persons. Now, let's be honest. The doctrine of the Trinity uh, can be a little baffling. It's not easy to understand. But the early church didn't set out uh, to create something difficult or perplexing. It's just that their experience of Jesus and the Holy Spirit led them uh, to thinking new ways. And the only conclusion that they could reach is that God is Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity uh, might not be easy to understand, but a map is not called upon to be simple. A map is called upon to be a faithful and accurate reflection of the lie of the land. And this account of Jesus' baptism presents us with the Trinity. Uh, Jesus is being baptised. The Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove. And God speaks in an audible voice, effectively confirming that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. So what does the doctrine of the Trinity tell us about God? Well, it tells us that God is relational. There is an eternal relationship going on within the Godhead, within God himself. What does that mean? Well, if you or I were marooned on a desert island and there was no one else there uh, taking God out of the picture for a moment, we wouldn't be able to have a relationship because there'd be no one else there to relate to. But God doesn't need anyone apart from himself to be in relationship. He has always existed. He has always been in relationship. And yet there is only one God. So it's not like at some point in all eternity, God got really bored. And so he decided to create us so that he'd have someone to keep him company. God has always been in relationship, an eternal relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus didn't come into existence roughly 2,000 years ago. Jesus has always existed. Jesus has always been the second person of the Trinity. Jesus was and is and always will be God. And this brings us to quite an obvious question. If Jesus is God and he led a perfect life, why did he need to be baptised? I mean, uh, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Jesus didn't need to repent. He didn't need to be washed clean of his sin sins, uh, literally or metaphorically. He never sinned, neither before or after his baptism. Uh, you and I can think of lots of things that we need to repent of on a daily, if not an hourly basis. Jesus had nothing to repent of. And we know that John the Baptist struggled with this. From the parallel account that we have in Matthew's Gospel, uh, we, we know that John was reluctant to baptise Jesus. Uh, he thought Jesus ought to be baptising him. And Jesus responds by saying, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. And the word righteousness here con uh, uh, concerns the quality of life, the kind of life uh, that John the Baptist demanded of those people who were coming to receive baptism. So Jesus' baptism is like a pledge of his intention to lead a righteous life, which he did, of course, do. Jesus is the only person who never sinned. 
But in being baptised, Jesus also sets us as an, an, an example. Uh, baptism for Jesus was a sign of sonship. Just as for us, it's a sign that we are one of God's children. We become part of his family. Uh, so some Christian denominations don't baptise. Uh, but that's a difficult position to hold, given that Jesus was baptised. If Jesus needed baptism, we certainly do. So if you're following Jesus, but you've not yet been baptised... Uh, then do come and have a chat uh, about that. There's no massive pressure, but you know, baptism is, is an important step in the Christian life. Equally, if you're baptised as a child or an infant and you've not been confirmed, uh, then come and talk about that because uh, that's your opportunity to say, yep, my parents had me baptised, I'm glad that they did, and not, I now make a conscious decision to follow Jesus. And actually, on the 5th of March, we're going to have a baptism service for children and adults, and on the 26th of March, we're having a confirmation service uh, where Bishop Allison will come uh, to be involved with that. So please do come and speak to me soon if you're interested in baptism or confirmation. So finally, we need to look at what this passage tells us about where Jesus is going. And the first thing to note is that Jesus' baptism occurs just before he begins his public ministry. And, and, and this moment, together with his wilderness experience that we'll be looking at next week, uh, are, if you like, Jesus' preparation for ministry. Isn't it interesting uh, that Jesus needed to prepare for ministry? I wonder how many people go into ministry without adequate preparation. And I'm not just talking about professional Christians, you know, clergy and people who are paid by the church, because all Christians are meant to be involved in ministry in one way or another. Uh, the church is the body of Christ. We all have a part to play in building God's kingdom. But one thing's for sure, if Jesus needed to prepare for ministry, so do we. We need the encouragement of God's word. We need the power of his spirit. That's, that's one of the reasons we come to church, to prepare us for ministry. We need to be built up, encouraged, informed, re-energized, uplifted, and then sent out. The words of the dismissal say, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Well, serving the Lord is ministry, and we need to be prepared for it. So we see that Jesus is heading into his short public ministry, uh, but we also get a very strong hint as to where that ministry will take him. The words, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased, they echo the words of Isaiah 42 verse 1. We heard them earlier. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. But Isaiah 42 describes the suffering servant. Verses 2 and 3 say, He will not shout or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. So God's affirmation of Jesus is also an indication that Jesus' ministry will take him to the cross. This is a pivotal point in Luke's gospel. Jesus is being strengthened by the spirit that descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Uh, Jesus is being encouraged by the love of the Father, uh, expressed in an audible voice. Uh, but at the same time, we have in view the magnitude of the task that lies ahead of Jesus. Uh, we have in view uh, the suffering that he will have to endure. It's hard to see at first glance, uh, but this passage gives us quite a clear indication of where Jesus is headed. 
So the baptism and genealogy of Jesus. Where did Jesus come from? Humanly speaking, he's a descendant of Abraham and David, sent uh, to fulfill God's promises, his covenantal promises. Who is he? He's the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, the man whose identity is God. Where's he headed? He's about to begin his public ministry, a ministry that will ultimately lead to his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. And next week, we'll be looking at the second part of Jesus's preparation for ministry. We'll be looking at his temptation in the wilderness. So if you're ever tempted, and I know that is all of us, uh, and you want to get a better idea how, as Christians, we can fight against that temptation and overcome it, then make sure you're here next week. That's what we'll be looking at then. Uh, but let's pray now. Heavenly Father, it's truly amazing to us uh, that you, uh, as powerful and in one sense incomprehensible as you are, stood in a muddy river in first century Palestine and was baptized by John the Baptist. We thank you that uh, this passage brings uh, a key aspect of your nature into view. I pray, Father, we, we, we thank you that uh, it reveals to us uh, the importance of baptism, uh, the importance of preparation for ministry. We pray, Father, that uh, you will continue to prepare us and you'll give us hearts and minds that are willing to use our skills and our gifts and our talents to your glory in this place. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.